Thanksgiving guy. Uh, I, I love Thanksgiving. I love the rhythms of Thanksgiving. I love cooking uh, for Thanksgiving. I love everything about Thanksgiving. And if it were left up to me, if it were my decision left to my devices, I would not start decorating for Christmas until the last bit of turkey had been picked off the bone. I mean, I, I'm just, I want to I give Thanksgiving its due and do Thanksgiving. However, uh, because of the rhythms of traveling with family as the kids were growing up and because uh, decorating for Christmas the longer you're married becomes a bigger and bigger job because you collect more, let's just politely call it stuff, uh, to put up everywhere, it, it needs a little more time. And so I finally acquiesced several years ago and I said the Sunday before Thanksgiving or the weekend before Thanksgiving we'll start decorating so that we can hopefully have all of it done by the time Thanksgiving gets here. Well, I've long accepted the fact my wife wants to leapfrog Thanksgiving, get right to Christmas. I've never known her to want to leapfrog Halloween to get to Christmas. This past year, this past fall, I kid you not, on the third week in October where I think it was 80 degrees and I was wearing shorts and flip-flops, my wife said, I want to decorate for Christmas. I said, have you lost your mind? Have you lost your mind? We're not Canadian. I mean, we don't do weird stuff like that. I mean, we, we, every, every holiday has its due. We just need to wait. Why do you want to do this? And she said to me, 2020 has been such a dumpster fire that I just want to get a festive environment around me. And so that's what she wanted to do. Now, I did have to hold my ground. I mean, we just we could not decorate that early. But we also didn't wait this year until the Sunday before Thanksgiving. I get what she's saying. I, I get that it's not been a year uh, most of us want to commemorate. In fact, there's something going around right now, and people, I think, are buying them. I think to myself, have you lost your mind? These Christmas ornaments that somehow commemorate 2020. You know, Santa Claus and a mask. There's one. If I were to buy one, I'd buy this one. It's a dumpster on fire, it says 2020, and you hang it on the tree. I mean, I, I, would, I would do that. I, we live in a world right now that is just unlike any other world, any other time of life that any of us alive right now have ever experienced. And the result of that has been that it is more gloomy, it is more scary, people are more angry than they have ever been. And with all of this despair, we need some hope, but we need more hope than what a few lights and tinsel can bring us. Thankfully, however, the season we're in now is built around the idea of bringing hope, legitimate hope, out of deep, deep despair. In fact, the despair that we're confronted with on the pages of the New Testament is not just six, seven, eight months old. It's centuries old. Why don't you find, if you would please, in your copy of God's Word, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew begins his retelling of the life of Christ by placing Jesus in historical context. And he does this by giving us a kind of a thumbnail sketch of Jesus' Jewish ancestry. Matthew's audience was mostly Jewish, people who had come to Christ out of a Jewish background, and they would have immediately picked up what Matthew was putting down in providing us this genealogy. They would have seen clearly the points that he was making, but we're going to need some help. We're more disconnected culturally from these events than the Jewish people were. And so we need to see what Matthew wants us to see. And that's what we'll try to do this morning. 
you would please stand as we honor the reading of God's word this morning, beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, if you're to go home today and somebody say, what would you do at church today? You say, well, at least part of what we did is our pastor read from a Jewish phone book for about a minute and a half. And you may be wondering, why are you reading that? Because let's be honest, when we're reading on our own, we blow through that. I mean, we never, hardly ever read that word for word. Let me, let me kind of confess something. I'm the same way. Uh, the, the first 10 chapters of First Chronicles genealogy, I promise you, that's not light devotional reading for me. We're just like, yep, 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 and let's get somewhere else. We have a tendency to skip right through these things, but the reason I read it is because this genealogy is a part of Matthew's teaching. He is teaching us from the get-go something we need to see, and in fact, he's building his entire argument about who Jesus is by using this genealogy, and if we will pay close attention to it, there are some things that might bubble up for us that cause us to begin to think. For instance, if we compare this record of Jesus' ancestors with Luke's, we will see a very different list of names. Why is this? Because genealogies in Jewish life were constructed to tell stories as much as anything else. In fact, more so than actually giving us who is the father of who. One possible explanation for the reason that Luke's Genealogy is different then is because he's telling a different story. The gospel of Luke about the life of Christ 
is written from the angle of presenting Jesus as the Savior for the world. And so it is the gospel to the outsider. It is the gospel to the Gentiles. Gentiles play a central role. It is a gospel to the sinner. It is a gospel to women. And so it should not surprise us that as Luke begins to tell us the story of Christ, he centers in on Mary and tells the events of Christmas from her perspective. Matthew, on the other hand, is telling us the story of Christ from a Jewish perspective, from someone who has been steeped in the Jewish religion and taught to expect the Jewish Messiah from the Jewish scriptures. And he has as his central character in the Christmas narrative, Joseph. And he then builds his genealogy by going back through the ancestors of Joseph. We understand that if you start in two different places, you can have an entirely different list of names. If you get to the great-grandparent level in all of our lives, there, is, there are legitimately eight different pathways that the story of your family history could run, literally. So it's not, it's not surprising that the names are different. It's just the story being told is being told from a different perspective. Another thing we might notice if we have a sharp eye, and I will almost shake your hand if you have a sharp enough eye to have seen this, because it would mean that you are deep, deep, deep into who was the father of who in the Old Testament. But one of the things you might notice if you do have that sharp eye is that entire generations are skipped. Now, again, this is actually normal for Jewish genealogy. The term father of can also be translated ancestor of. And so it would have been very natural for a great-grandparent, for instance, to be listed as the father of uh, their great-grandchild. I, I could, in this perspective, be called the uh, son uh, of Charlie Morris. But Charlie Morris is my great-grandfather, so one of my great-grandfathers. So, so the stories are are built in a highly stylized way, and Matthew actually gives us the key in verse 17. He's told us that he's packaged this very specifically in groups so that, so that David is at the center of one part of it and the culmination of the other end of it is Jesus himself. So we have these stylized records meant to show us something, and what Matthew is showing us is that how out of the despair of the Jewish people, God delivered to them hope in Jesus Christ. And he shows us how Jesus brings that hope by first showing us the reality of despair. The reality of despair. Missing from our eyes is just how bleak of a story Jesus' ancestry tells. One of the biggest sources of despair for many people if we stop and think about it, is the, the despair born of unmet expectations. We've just had a very different kind of Thanksgiving. And probably all of us in some way had some unmet expectations. We had planned on my daughter and her husband coming down from Minnesota. They were unable to come. We had planned on Julie's uncle and his wife to come in from Amarillo, Texas. Uh, we haven't seen him since Abby got married three years ago. And that wasn't able to happen. So as we gathered, there weren't the people there that we were expecting to see. And that can lead to melancholy and even, if people really fixate on it and dwell on it, lead to despair. Unmet expectations can lead to despair. And the entire ancestry of Jesus is built around unmet 
expectations. Jesus' ancestry starts where the ancestry of every Jewish person starts. It starts with Abraham. His story begins with a call from God to follow him on the promise that he was going to give him a land that he could call, him, call his own and that he would make him a great nation and this great nation coming from him would be a blessing to the entire world. But when he dies, he's got one son, not many, he's got one son. And the only piece of land that he can call his own in the land that God promised to him was the land that he bought with his own money to bury his wife. Unmet expectations. And when his son and grandsons start having children, it becomes very apparent that all of these people are from the cast of the Jerry Springer show. They are train wrecks over and over again. There's no one that is commendable that comes from this. And everything begins to descend, has a bright spot in Joseph, but descends until the point where they're slaves in the land of Egypt. But from there, things begin to trend up. God miraculously delivers his people. He leads them back to conquer the land that God promised Abraham. They begin to establish themselves as a nation in the land that God had promised Abraham. And everything completes itself with the king, David, after God's own heart. Everything's worked out just fine. Everything has turned out exactly like it was supposed to turn out, right? Wrong. David doesn't have sons that follow him, that follow his God like he followed his God. And so more often than not, his descendants prove to be awful rulers. And because the character of a leader is the destiny of the people... The people of Israel take on the rebellious, sinful, wicked character of their ruler. And suddenly you have a nation that is under God's judgment. And so God comes in and he strips away everything. He strips away their land. He strips away their king. He strips away their temple. And many of them find themselves in the land of the conquering Babylonians. And those that are left behind are living in what for them felt very much like an apocalyptic kind of Mad Max nightmare. Well, then a small hand of people begin to return to Babylon to begin the hard work of rebuilding Jerusalem and with it the temple and with it the nation and thinks, well, maybe, maybe things are going to, to get better, but when they lay the foundations of the temple, yay, good moment, the people who remember the old temple wept. What an ugly little thing that is. And so immediately they have disappointment and unmet expectations. And then they get all of these varying conquerors countries coming in and they become vassal states to these countries. And they have a moment of bright hope about 100 years before Christ where a group of people called the Maccabees overthrow an evil, wicked Assyrian king and they think finally everything is going to get like it's supposed to be. Our expectations born in the promise to Abraham. Our expectations born in the promise to David are going to work out and then... Rome. And so by the time you get to Matthew chapter 1, hope is gone. Only the most deluded would think things are going to get any better at all. With Rome, the most powerful empire the world had ever known, firmly in charge of these people. So this genealogy portrays a group of people 
who had had the hope kicked out of them. Because every good thing they'd ever hoped for hadn't come about. But this genealogy also portrays the despair born of the reason hope ultimately vanishes. The ubiquity of sin. Sin is everywhere you want to look in the genealogy of Jesus. And as a matter of fact, two of the most salacious moments in the Old Testament are represented in Jesus' family tree. The first one you may not be familiar with. The second one, even people who really don't follow God's word as being true, know. The first one, verse 3, says that Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, what the first readers of Matthew knew, and most of us don't, is how Judah came to be the father of these two men. Genesis 38 tells one of the most graphic stories in Scripture. In fact, it's so graphic um, that when I was preaching through the book of Genesis as a young preacher in rural Tennessee on a Sunday night, Shortly before evening church, when I came to Genesis 38, our minister of music, great guy named Terry Gold, came to me and said, are you preaching from this chapter? And I said, yeah, it's God's word. And he said, well, you know there are children present, right? And I said, well, yeah. And so here's what he did. <laughs> when I got ready to preach, I said, all people seven and under go with Terry, and he, he watched VeggieTales with him while I unpacked <laughs> the graphic story of Genesis 38. Genesis 38 tells us about the firstborn of Judah, a man named Ur, who was married to a woman named Tamar. But he was so guilty of some unspecified wickedness that the Lord killed him. So as was the custom of the time, Tamar was given to the next oldest son of Judah, a man named Onan, to be Onan's wife, but to father a child in the name of the deceased Son. Doesn't make any sense at all to us, but this was custom at the time. Well, Onan essentially rapes Tamar, but he does so in a way so that a child is not conceived. So the Lord killed him. So we're down two sons. Judah's next son was too young to give in marriage at the time, but just to be frank, Judah wasn't super excited about giving another son to Tamar because, from his perspective, she must be doing something, she must be cursed. Killing your sons, not taking into an account their own wickedness. So he says, you stay here in my house, and when my next son is old enough to marry, I will give you to him in marriage. He had no intention of doing it. Essentially, he was going to keep her a prisoner in his home the rest of his life. Well, when her father-in-law decided to go out with the boys once, this is all in Genesis 38, Tamar saw an opportunity. She slips away, disguises herself as a prostitute, offered herself to her unknowing but all too willing father-in-law and thus tricked him into conceiving his own grandsons, Perez and Zara. That's an awful story. And it's right there, verse 3, in the family tree of Christ. And then, of course, the next thing that jumps off the page is in verse 6 where we learn that Solomon is the son of David by the wife of Uriah, who we know as Bathsheba. Almost everyone knows the story of David's seduction of Bathsheba, the unintended child 
the murder of Bathsheba's husband in order to try to cover his tracks. And so we see here the presence of sin in what for Matthew is the high watermark in Jesus' ancestry. King David, what are we to take away from this? There's sin everywhere. Wicked, heinous, awful, gross sin everywhere. And because of that sin, that's why the sons of Abraham were Jerry Springer show train wrecks. And that's why the descendants of David were awful rulers. They never could escape the presence of sin. So you have despair, despair of unmet expectations. God hadn't come through for me. Let's be frank. And the despair born of living in a sinful world. And as a matter of fact, I think if we were all honest with ourselves now, we would all feel something of that toxic mix in our own hearts. Do I even need to ask you to raise your hand to see if 2020 has turned out like you thought it would? I mean, if you had on your 2020 bingo card a divisive election and racial strife and a global pandemic, good for you. None of the rest of us did. 2020 has been littered and rife with unmet expectations. Do I even need to ask you to raise your hand if you're sickened by the sin that you see running loose in our world? Or the sin that stares you back in the mirror every time you look in one? We all are feeling something of the despair. In May, which we all understand to be the early disruption phase of the pandemic, 42,000 people responded to a U.S. Census survey, and a full third of those who responded reported symptoms that would coincide with clinical anxiety or depression. Even those numbers may be inflated somewhat because of the folks who would agree to take that kind of survey, but they do demonstrate that there is a, a wide presence of deep despair in our country today, which we note. And anecdotally, our church leadership has taken notice of that same despair in our body. Happy little Blue Valley Baptist Church. We've noted that people are crankier than usual. We've noted that people refuse to give one another the benefit of the doubt like maybe they used to. We've noted that people are more gossipy than they used to be. We've noted that people will draw hard and fast lines to separate themselves from one another over things that ultimately are not going to matter for a millisecond after eternity begins. What is the root cause of all of that? Well, we've got to be able to work out our frustration somewhere. Our despair somewhere, so we take it out on one another without actually realizing that it all is because of sin. So none of us probably needs a Bible to prove to us the reality of despair in our lives and in our world, but we do need the Bible to remind us of the reason to hope, and the reason to hope is Jesus. 
By making the point that Jesus was the legitimate heir of David and the fulfillment of the messianic hopes of the Jewish people, Matthew is also making the point that Jesus stepped into a despairing world, which is a point that the New Testament makes over and over and over again. When John tells the story of Christ coming, he states he was God and he robed himself, he clothed himself with flesh and dwelt among us. He stepped into that despairing world. When we read of the uh, angelic visit with uh, Mary at the beginning of Matthew and also at the beginning of Luke, we are to understand that Jesus Christ is not just an ordinary human Jewish boy, that he is divine, he is God, and he's stepping into despair. In the most famous passage of scripture, perhaps, that Paul ever wrote, Philippians chapter 2, he says, Jesus, though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he let loose of it. He emptied himself. Why? to step into the junk and to turn it all around in hope in him. And the reason he was going to be able to do that was not just fulfilling fully the expectations of a messianic king or the promise to Abraham. The reason he was going to be able to do that is because he was going to undo what caused all of that in the first place. And that was sin. He was going to deal with the problem of sin's ubiquity being everywhere in all of us. In fact, because of Jesus, Matthew's showing us here, we no longer have to be defined by our immorality. Everybody's got something in the closet. Because of Jesus, that thing which would steal your hope no longer has to define you. How do I know that? Well, because of something Matthew does. Matthew makes a highly unusual choice of including actually five women in his genealogy of Jesus, but four we're going to look at right now, one being Mary. The other women are Tamar, who we just talked about, and Rahab, and Ruth, and then the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, who we just talked about. It is so unusual that a Jewish man like Matthew would include women in a genealogy that copious amounts of academic ink have been spilled over the years trying to figure out why he did just that. And there are many theories because there are many publishers of many books. <laughs> but I think probably the best answer lies in what they all have in common. All four of those women have a sordid backstory. We already know about Tamar. We already know about Bathsheba. Rahab is mentioned in the book of Judges as being instrumental in helping the armies of Israel overthrow the city of Jericho. So yay, but she's also a harlot. She's a prostitute. Ruth is presented as virtuous in the book that bears her name, but her native people, the Moabites, eh, not so much. See, the Moabites were the ancestor of Lot's daughters and conceived in a night when Lot's daughters got their dad so drunk they engaged in incest. And the children that resulted are the progenitors of the people of Moab. They were the sworn enemies 
of the people of Israel and deemed because of their underpinnings, how they started, and also their rampant paganism, deemed to be unworthy to enter the temple essentially ever. If you had any Moabite blood in you, practically you could never enter the temple of God. And yet, David came from Moabite blood. King Jesus came from Moabite blood. All of these women have a questionable background or questionable character. All of them known for their sin or their sinful character or background. But because of Jesus, their identity changes completely. Tamar is now in the family of Jesus. And Rahab is in the family of Jesus. And Ruth is in the family of Jesus. And Bathsheba is in the family of Jesus. Because of the connection with Jesus, their identity changed. That is how the child of Christmas brings hope out of despair. We can look at the world in which we live and have every reason in the world to want to give up. We can look in the mirror at our sin and have every reason in the world to give up. But because Jesus came, we have hope, which is not wishful thinking hope. But it's solid, grounded in reality, future experiencing life. Out of despair. First Sunday of Advent, we remind ourselves of all of that, of Jesus coming and giving a despairing world hope. We do that in a very specific way that probably you've noticed. The ancient monastic church created a, a liturgical buildup to Christmas called the O Antiphons. Antiphons are, are short chants, and on the seven nights before Christmas during Vespers or evening worship, these chants were included. And each one builds upon the anticipation created by the previous one. And they're all rooted in a messianic promise from the prophet Isaiah. The seven are on your screen. O wisdom, O Lord, O root of Jesse, O key of David, O day spring, O king of the nations, O Emmanuel, God with us. Now, about 200 years ago, those antiphons were turned into a Christmas hymn called O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it is a hymn which brings with it an acknowledgement of despair, but it ends with hope in Jesus. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lowly exile here, in despair because of unmet expectations. Because of sin. Who mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. And then everything changes. Rejoice. That hymn, the first Sunday of Advent, Matthew, is showing us that one of the ways Jesus makes all things new is that he takes people gripped, held hostage by despair, and if they will turn to him, turn that despair into hope. And I hope you will today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.